afternoon, everyone. I'm so pleased to see so many of the interns here and so many young men. These are really bold young men who would show up on their first week as a heritage intern at the Conservative Women's Network event. There are some men in our building who have worked here for decades who have yet to make an appearance at the Conservative Women's Network, so I will shame them by telling them how many young men came. We're in for a treat today. I'm really pleased to be co-hosting um, the Conservative Women's Network uh, this lunch. Um, the regulars will notice that Michelle Easton is um, not here. She's in uh, California. So we're so pleased that Laurel Conrad, the program director for um, Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, is our co-host. Um, I'm Bridget Wagner. I direct coalition relations here at Heritage. Um, and I think we're in, as I said, for a real treat. We're joined by the popular author, columnist, and speaker, Mary Beth Hicks. Um, and today she's going to be talking about parenting in America, shaping our future from moment to moment. Mary Beth has spent more than a dozen years writing from the intersection of parenting and culture. Her column, Teaching Mo Teachable Moments, is featured in Catholic Digest magazine, and she appears regularly on EWTN's Sun, uh, Sunrise Morning Show with Matt Swain. Some of us here in DC may recognize her name for the stint, uh, her nine-year stint, uh, writing a culture column for the Washington Times. Uh, we wish you would pick that up again. Um, in addition to her writing and speaking, uh, she currently serves as director of marketing at Faith Catholic, the publishing and communications company of the Catholic Diocese of Lansing, Michigan. Uh, she's the author of four books, her latest, Teachable Moments Using Everyday Encounters with Media and Culture to Instill Conscience, Character, and Faith, um, just came out last year. And I think we've got the others here. So don't let the, ki the kids drink the Kool-Aid, confronting the assault on our family's faith and freedom. And this is a Regnery Books uh, publication. So thanks very much uh, to Margie for joining us, the head of Regnery Books. Um, uh, bringing up geeks. Genuine, enthusiastic, empowered kids. I love that. That's the geeks. Um, how to protect your kid's childhood in a grow-up-too-fast world. And the perfect world, the perfect world inside my minivan. How many minivan families are there in the audience? Probably quite a number. So thanks uh, for bringing the books. I really appreciate uh, that. As you can imagine, Mary Beth is called on frequently by the media to comment on cultural issues, and her appearances include on Fox News Channel's Hannity, uh, Fox and Friends, Christian Broadcast Network's uh, 700 Club, and EWTN's The World Over, and dozens of national and radio television programs, including those hosted by Sean Hannity and Dennis Miller, uh, Laura Ingraham, jo Jim Bohannon, Hugh Hewitt, G. Gordon Liddy, Brian Kilmeade, and a lot of others. I noticed uh, she tweeted out a shout out to her buddy Hugh Hewitt during the presidential debate. You'll know he was one of the questioners. Uh, Mary Beth began her career as a writer in the Reagan White House. Later, she was a communications specialist in educational, healthcare, and the corporate sectors. Uh, she's a graduate of Michigan State University, and she serves on the advisory board of another great organization, Parents Television Council. Um, they seek to promote decency on the airwaves. After 15 years leading a very active life in Lansing, Michigan, Mary Beth and her husband, Jim Hicks, pulled up stakes this summer uh, with their last one in the house going off to college, and they moved to Savannah, Georgia. So they are the, pr the proud, very proud parents of four 
um, kids, the youngest now, a freshman in college. So please join me in welcoming Mary Beth Hicks. Thank you. When I saw everybody streaming in, um, I do with that thing that speakers sometimes have to do. You got to recalibrate real quick because the audience doesn't look like what you expected. So, because um, I, I, I never really thought of doing a parenting talk for so many 22-year-old guys. I mean, I'm, <laughs> but you know what? Better time. I think it's perfect timing. Yeah. So, um, but I do want to talk not just about parenting, but about our culture that we live in and how we can be more effective um, as parents and grandparents. We have those here today um, as friends and family members and um, as future parents, because I think a lot of you probably are in that category, and it's never too soon to imagine what kind of parent you would be. Um, our nation needs you to think about that. That's kind of a, a big key. Um, I, um, as Bridget said, I have spent a better part of my the last dozen or so years um, at this intersection I like to call between parenting and politics, and just sort of an odd place to be, but it turns out parenting has become a really political thing. Um, to wit, uh, who saw the story about the Missouri teenager who, I, I'm so bad with the pronouns, he, who feels he's a she, wants to use the women's locker room, and 150 students in a Missouri high school walked out of class and um, protest because the girls did not want to share their locker room with a student who has male anatomy. Did you see that story? That's pretty typical now that's happening. There's a school in California that has eliminated gender-based bathrooms altogether for children because they have eight, count them, eight transgendered children in elementary school in their school. How is that? eight transgendered kids in one school. It's like a magnet school for transgendered kids. Um, and, and those kinds of things are happening all across our country where parents and families are being confronted with the ways that the culture is, um, is kind of hijacking what their kids are thinking and believing and knowing. And it's really in direct conflict with some of the values and the messages parents are trying to teach in the home. So you guys are all, like most of you, many of you are young people, college students, and, and just out of college. Um, raise your hand if you haven't sat in a class um, and thought to yourself, what this guy's teaching is crazy. Okay, no hands. There we go. Um, because you are being uh, confronted all the time, especially at the college level, with messages that are very politically driven, agenda driven, and they're meant to change your thinking and help you join kind of the army of the left to become part of a machine that's going to churn out uh, people who think the way they think. Um, the thing is, it's happening at the as, as young as kindergarten, and that's what parents are really confronted with today. And what you, those of you who are young and are not in the parenting business yet, will be confronted with always. For us, for my generation of parents, it's kind of new. You know, your kid comes home with some sort of assignment, and they're supposed to write about why capitalism is bad, and you're like, this is shocking. Capitalism isn't bad. Who told you that? Um, your children will always grow up to be told that capitalism is bad. That's a, like, like start with start with the premise that if you come into your life as an adult, as a conservative, someone who has some principles and beliefs that you hold true, um, they're going to be challenged in all the places where you and your family will operate. Um, so first of all, I want to address the fact that I did write this really great book called Don't Let the Kids Drink the Kool-Aid, which Margie published for me, and I'm so grateful. Um, when I did the research for that book, though, I, um, I learned so many things about our, the young generation of people today. And that is, um, you know, when Barack Obama became a senator and he, he announced from the floor of the Senate early on, the culture war is over. Like, that's so 90s. You know, I hate to say this, I agree with this guy, but I agree with that. He was right. The culture war is, is kind of over. We, we lost. 
We, we are losing, or we, we have lost. But the way I, and that was my premise. Did we lose? Have we lost? And so I started doing research about the young generation, my children's generation. And they range now in age from 26 down to almost 18. And, and what did I learn about them? Well, some interesting facts. Between the education system, the media, and pop culture, there is a belief system among young people which essentially sets up the eventuality that we will live in a socialist America. Because the way um, most young people think, not you guys, because of course you're the, you know, you're the smart ones. Um, uh, not a joke, but you can laugh. Um, so <laughs> uh, the way most kids think is exactly the way the education system the media and pop culture are driving them to think. And who's behind that? Well, if we, if we kind of just peer behind the curtain, we see that the academy uh, where teachers go to learn to teach, the education colleges in this country, are home to some of the most radically liberal people in the academy. Um, literally, if you go and look, and I, I went to Michigan State University, which I'm super proud of, except that College of Education in the number one school of education in the country year after year for now like 16, 18 years is churning out some of the most, you know, is run by some of the most liberal people you'll ever find, um, at avowed socialists, people who really feel like their agenda, their job, is to train up teachers to go forward and use the education system to change America. That's their, their role. They feel that the education system is, should be an agent for change. And so this is why what we have, you know, and, and of course, we, we see that Common Core coming down the pike looks like it's some great system for uh, creating a, a more fair education system across America. But really, it's a great way to, um, to make all of education towards the same driving, driving agenda. Um, and this is why you have kids in kindergarten who are taught about um, the new way that family can be defined. Family, um, I saw, on, uh, saw an article online in which a parent complained their, their child had to take a test, and, a multiple choice test, and one of the questions was define family. It was like for a health class. Define family. And it said um, parent, people who are genetically connected to each other, living in the same home, you know, by marriage, and then by, uh, and then, and one of the definitions was any group of people that loves each other and cares about each other. Um, and this kid checked the traditional definition of a family and got the problem wrong because apparently a family, by definition, in a, in a public school in America was any group of people that loves each other and cares about each other. And so that can feel like a family, but we, we don't even use the words with their own definition anymore because an agenda is just so, so clearly formed. So, um, so what I, I, I considered in Don't Let the Kids Drink the Kool-Aid was, what's the Kool-Aid? Who's feeding it to our children? And what's the result? And, and really systematically, you can go through and, and see that on issues about um, sex and sexuality, the homosexual agenda, which is now turned into something called sexual fluidity. That's, like the, that's the new and improved. So the gay agenda is actually done. They're done with that. We, we, we'll have gay marriage. That's a done deal. Now we have um, the, the more important agenda, sexual fluidity. This is this idea that you aren't really who God made you to be. You, you are whatever you choose to be. And that could change throughout your life. That's the other thing. It's this whole idea that you are um, not defined by your biology. You can choose to decide what your gender is, what you identify with, and that's not the same as your sexual orientation. That could be something different. And all of it could change like you're tossing a salad because it doesn't matter. You can, you're the one who decides. So um, this is all being taught now in our schools, and here's how they do this. Um, one of the things that parents have to be concerned about is uh, these teachable moments that I'm, and I'm talking about in a moment, is that in the school system, um, there's 
uh, anytime that, that schools, and it's all across the country, there's different, different rules for different states. Anytime schools teach about sexuality, sexual education, they have to do three things for parents. They have to notify parents in advance that they're going to be teaching some certain materials. They have to give parents an opportunity to review materials before their children see them. And they have to give parents the opportunity to opt their children out. So many conservative parents across America do opt their kids out for sexuality education because it's in direct conflict to what they teach at home um, in their Christian or religious principles, not just Christian principles. Um, so how, have, how has the left sort of moved this so that they can get around parents? Getting around parents is a big agenda for the left. Um, one of the ways is to take all that material and move it into the school safety program. If you teach it in the context of bullying, now you don't have to ask anybody's permission. You don't have to ask parents if you can talk to them about a new definition, uh, talk to their children about a new definition of what is a family, or about what it means to be transgendered, or about why a, a, a boy might be same-sex attracted at only the age of seven. You can talk to seven-year-olds about that if you're trying to teach them not to bully one another. And you don't have to ask anybody. And so this is how it's been systematically implemented into schools, and so we have to really uh, be aware of that. The book teachable moments that I, I'll talk to you about just a little bit, I know people get hungry and, and boys get hangry, so I'm gonna be careful. Um, I have one of those. He, he, you can always tell when Jimmy's hungry because he snaps at you and you know you realize it's not you, it's his stomach talking. Um, so, but teachable moments. So uh, I, I wrote this book because I realized so many parents feel like they're being hijacked at every turn. They, you know, you're, you're doing a good job in your home, you're trying to raise up your kids, probably the way many of you young people were raised, um, with, a, with strong values and with a, a sense of your faith and a sense of, of uh, the character that your parents wanted you to have. And yet, you know, you, you open your computer and your homepage is a newspaper or a news site or Yahoo or whatever, and the headline that your 10-year-old reads as he's going to do his homework is going to be about Anthony Weiner or some other horrible, disgusting moment in time. And what do you do? You know, how do you do that? Um, I actually had that happen to me. Um, when Amy, I used to keep the Washington Times as my homepage, and when Amy was little and she opened it up, and um, it was right around the time of one of the prostitution ring things, and it, but I just remember that it was the words prostitution ring, and she thought it was a hula hoop. Um, <laughs> and, you know, thanks, Governor of New York, now I'm explaining prostitution ring to a 10-year-old. Uh, but that's how we're parenting now. We have to, we're stuck facing um, you know, exploiting our own children's innocence because we have to explain what's happening out in the world. And, um, and so I'm encouraging parents in this book to do that very thing, to instead of try and necessarily protect our kids' innocence, which we'd love to do if we could, since we can't, we have to address it head on. And so I'm actually offering some really concrete hands-on advice for how people can have conversations about really difficult things. But at the same time, you know, we can offer teachable moments to friends, to, to you know, to people as you're having a debate and you know over a, a beer in a bar to uh, to people at your family reunions, you know there's men, there's no end of opportunities for us to be teaching others about the values that we share and we want to get out there. Um, so I borrowed this expression, teachable moments, from the education system, from from teachers. We know that teachers will come into a classroom with an agenda, with a curriculum that they need to teach, but something happens out in the world that you know is a, a headline, or something happens to one of the kids in the class, some good thing, an award they win, or somebody has an altercation on the playground, and a good teacher will take that and use it to teach some sort of lesson that's not necessarily what she had planned that day or he had planned that day, but you know, nonetheless, the opportunity presents itself. So I'm encouraging parents in this book, and grandparents, and coaches and friends, and 
to, to look for those moments. Instead of just letting them go, we have to be on alert for them. We have to be very intentional. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize is we can't have the kind of America that we all know is possible, that we've sort of had in the past and can re re redesign it for our future, if we're not looking for ways to, to really do that work and to, and to train people up in that way. And so, um, so I talk about being intentional in the way that we parent. Um, I also talk in this book quite a bit about what it really means to have good character. So um, it turns out there's a, there's a researcher out of the University of Notre Dame named Christian Smith, and he's done great research on the ethics of young people, actually a lot of the ages of our audience. And what he finds is that young Americans do not have a vocabulary for morality. Um, it turns out all these years that we've been, as parents, telling people, you know, be good, be nice, that's not appropriate, this is appropriate, these nebulous words that don't mean anything, it turns out it left, it left kids with no way to define what is right and wrong, good and bad. And that, coupled with the fact that our moral relativism in this culture uh, doesn't want to label anything good or bad or right or wrong. And so we've created a system in which morality is defined by feelings. Something feels bad, it's probably bad. If it feels good, it's probably okay. If it feels bad to you, then it's bad for you. If it feels good to me, it's probably okay for me, but it might not be for you. And feelings are, feelings are the most nebulous thing. Nobody shares the same feelings. We if something is bad to me, it might not be offensive to you, but uh, this is how we've defined what's right and wrong anymore in our culture. Um, and Christian Smith was able to quantify this with a whole generation of young people, college-age people, who really couldn't, who didn't have a vocabulary for morality. So one of the first things I'm doing in this book is really trying to help parents and, and others who work with kids um, to, to recapture a vocabulary around what it means to do, to be right and, to do right and wrong, the oughtness of things, you know, what philosophers talk about, whether it's something you ought to do or ought not to do. Um, and and it's, it's a way of thinking about what the role of parenting is that's really very different from what the culture will tell us. So many people kind of go into the idea of, you know, getting married and having kids and and that's just kind of like almost a bucket list thing. Of course, you're going to have children. And you don't really think about what you'd like for them to be, how you'd like them to turn out. And I, I'm kind of arguing you certainly can't um, manipulate or orchestrate the kind of personality that your kids will have. But you really ought to think about the kind of people you'd like them to be. Um, in the same way you would think about building a house. Like, you know, we'd like to have a great room, and we'd like to have bedrooms and bathrooms. We know that there's architecture there that needs to happen. Um, you know, my husband and I did that very thing with our children. We said, well, we, we know it, here's what's important to us. We want to raise people who um, have integrity, who are honest, who are hardworking, who persevere, who are resilient, who can fail and get over it and learn from it. Those are things you actually have to think about, because if you don't provide the opportunities for those things, they don't really happen. Uh, instead, you'll end up with somebody who's really dependent on you and needs you to go to your job interview with them and negotiate your salary with your new boss, which apparently happens aghast. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's true. Um, so, so we want to have that vocabulary for what it means to have to have good character. I actually put a list of words, alphabet, alphabetized list of words in this book that parents could learn so they could start to really um, address the issues with their kids and say, I really like to see how determined you are. I really like how, how you persevered through this problem. I really, um, it troubles me to see that you are wavering on your, your ethical behavior in this situation and really have those conversations. So that's, that's an important piece of what I did in this book. Um, and then I kind of took, uh, I took six or so areas of, of life that parents encounter, family life, friendships, the media, 
sports, turns out that's a big place where parents can have a lot of progress, um, sports, um, school, and I, what I called loosely episodes of freedom and responsibility, uh, which most children don't have enough of and talked about the teachable moments that can happen in all of those things. And it can be anything from, um, you know, we were invited to a wedding of a nephew and he's gay and we're not sure what to do. How should we handle that? Or, um, you know, my, my seven-year-old just brought home uh, the ginger person diagram, which talks, <laughs> that's a real thing, um, which defines, you know, gender and sexuality and sexual orientation all differently than we were teaching at her home. What do we do? Um, and, you know, uh, the kids at school have decided that a boy who seems sensitive and artistic is gay. What do I do if my, my child is uh, already trying to determine who might be gay in their classroom? Uh, you know, kids have stopped talking to my kid because they're not in social media and I'm not permitting that yet. What should I do? These are the sorts of things I actually, and it's, I, I almost was surprised that people would want this sort of thing, except for they kept, friends kept stopping me on the parking lot at school and asking me these sorts of questions. And since I appear to have an opinion about everything, I just started answering them. Um, so, but these are the sorts of things that parents don't really know. And to be honest with you, I'm really thrilled that there's so many younger people in the audience because I have to say, we live in a culture that isn't super skilled at parenting anymore. And it is the most important thing you'll ever do. I mean, you, you know, if, unless you're going to cure cancer or solve some other huge problem or learn how to build a better bridge, probably the biggest legacy you'll ever leave behind in your life is your family. And especially in our nation, I really feel like we, we won't have the kind of country that we know we want, that we can envision, unless we raise up a generation of people who could give us that, who could lead us there. And so we've lost touch with what that means, not even just from a knowledge perspective. Like, okay, so um, one of the things I learned in researching these books, the, the government quantifies what kids know about government and social studies and science. They take these big tests and they and they can, the Department of Education can give you stats on this. Um, so one of the things I learned shocked me, but I don't know why. Um, I should have known this, only about a third or 31% of high school seniors could tell you, um, of, as of a couple years ago, where the government gets its money. And we wonder why everybody thinks the government should give them stuff. They have no idea where the government gets its money anyway. Um, and about, about three months after I wrote Don't Let the Kids Drink the Kool-Aid, um, there was this great publicity opportunity. I couldn't have planned it better myself. It was Occupy Wall Street. Um, it actually... They, on television, it just made every point I was trying to make in this book. Like a whole generation of people sitting in a park going, yeah, I need a car. <laughs> and yeah, well, I'd like a car too, you know. <laughs> get thee to the dealership. It's where they get them. Um, <laughs> so, but, but that's the generation now. So if, so if you're here and you're a young conservative and, and hoping to be a young conservative leader, this is the culture that you're going to operate in. And how can we fix it? Well, on the one hand, we have to be very persuasive in the way we, we live and lead, and that's really um, a, an important you know, a, a mandate for all of you here. Um, but then you have to think, too, about what you'll leave behind. What will your future be? Um, and so you know, I would say, you know, I, I don't I want to take too much time, and we do want time for questions, but I would say this. Um, take time, if you're already a parent or a grandparent, to think about the character of the children that you know. And if you're not yet a parent, Take time to think about the character that you want to teach someday. And of course, exhibit that yourselves every chance you can. But in addition, you know, make parenting um, an act of civic duty, if you will. It's got to be something that we do where we recognize what we do matters. What we do at around our dinner tables matters. Those conversations matter. Those moments, those teachable moments, they really matter because we have this opportunity to contradict 
all that's coming at our families, and we have to really be responsible about the way we do that and, and really definitive. And it takes the courage of our convictions. I know so many parents, uh, I have a sister who had to stand up to her public school system uh, about things that were being taught in her middle schooler's classroom. She, she ended up moving her kids from the public schools, I will say. But um, they played a game in the classroom. Uh, it was a game. Um, it was a white privilege game in which everyone stood in the back of the room and then the, the teacher said, take two steps forward if your parents went to college. Take three steps forward if you speak another language in your home. Take two steps backwards if that language is Spanish. And they, they'd go back and forth and back and forth. And so by the end of it, all the white people were up in the front of the room and the black and Hispanic kids were in the back of the room. And this teacher basically taught these children how to think divisively about one another because of their diversity instead of celebrating their unity. It was the most horrible thing and, and just complete. Now, and that's the sort of lesson plan you really can't cr contradict. You can't go in and say, stop teaching you know, th this kind of bias to my child. The kids in the class, to their credit, were horrified. They said, that's not true. We're all here together in this school. We all have opportunity. We're some of our best students are people you have standing in the back of the room. That makes no sense. Oh, well, you know, statistically, this is how, this is America. This is the culture that you're, you're coming up in. And this is what you have to know. So instead of teaching young people how to throw all that out the window and say, we'll have none of it, it was, it was indoctrinating them to accept this is the status quo and you're part of it. And to make, you know, to make the minority children feel terrible to make the white kids feel terrible. Everybody felt terrible after this lesson. And this is happening in American schools. And it's stuff that's, that's coming out of our colleges and universities and being taught to teachers. This is how you teach. So uh, the, you know, the point, we're at a very critical point when we have to pay attention and look and say, these are the choices that, um, the, these are the, the lessons that we have to have a, a moment ready for. And we have to be prepared to know what we want to say about that. Um, so we don't have to look very far for what that would be. So um, I just, I do, I really appreciate, especially so many young people here, I feel like you guys are really setting you up for success. This is good. Um, now you just have to find somebody to marry and have kids with. <laughs> but you're all a good looking group, so I don't think that's going to be a problem. Um, so, um, but I do want to have a little bit of time to, to have a conversation with any of you. And if you're not a parent yet, that's okay. You, you're entitled to an opinion. You can uh, have one anyway. So what kind of, any questions or comments from anybody? Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. That's funny, because when I started writing columns, um, the question is, what do I think about Facebook for kids and everything? I think Facebook is like the yellow pages. Everybody's got one, nobody cares. Um, <laughs> it's like the eight-track tape of your generation, you know, nobody. Um, but um, when I started writing columns, Facebook was pretty new, and it was, that was the big question. Everybody's, how, what is the right age for Facebook? Um, now I would answer that um, about 43, because that's what all the 43-year-old women are getting on Facebook. So apparently that's the right age. But um, I th what I think is this, and, I, it, and I, my opinion about this had to morph through the years of my parenting just as the technology um, reared its head in my home and I had no way around it. I think that it is a fact of life. The way we communicate with one another is what it is. And so good parents are going to be the ones who adapt and who realize, you know, media is morally neutral. It's, it, it, the technology is morally neutral. It could be good, could be bad, could be bullying, could be evangelization, could be communicating. We have a family thread that goes on and on, and then there's sub-threads. The girls have a thread, and then I have one with my son and my husband, and we, you know, it's, it promotes great communication. You all have that with your families and friends as well, and it's a fact of life, but it's definitely disruptive to children in a lot of ways, and so I always encourage parents to really kind of keep it at bay for as long as you can, um, because really, 
being out there in the world and social media is the same as letting somebody just go by themselves to the mall or go someplace, uh, you know, I wouldn't drop a kid off in the middle of Times Square and go, you know, here, meet all the people. It's great. Have fun, you know, <laughs> right? So, um, so we have to recognize that there are, there are some dangers around media. When it comes to media, here's the, here's the analogy I like best. I look at the media generally, social media and all media, like the ocean. It's beautiful. It's big. It's beautiful. There's a lot of cool things in it, a lot of dangerous things in it, and you can drown. So when I bring my kids to the ocean, I'm not going to go, here, have a swim. I'm going to walk out there with a toddler and hold their hands, and then I'm going to put swimmies on you, and then I'm going to take you to swim lessons. And eventually, I'm going to finally be able to sit on the beach and read a book because you will be able to swim, and you'll know what you're doing. And if you run across like a jellyfish, you might come and ask my advice. So um, that's kind of how the media works in the same way. And then that, that's kind of how I feel like parents need to approach it. Um, you know, we, we've all seen the stories about how social media literally destroyed kids. And so I would say, in part, that's a reflection of parents being very naive about what it is and how it works. Last night I gave a parenting talk in Northern Virginia, and this guy came up and said, I can't, I can't be bothered. It's too hard to learn. And I'm like, well, then you're, you know, letting your kid drown, but, you know, good for you, Dad. You know, so, um, yeah. So we've got microphones. So right when you get called on, wait for the microphone. Anybody else? Anything? Yes. Um, so, being that this talk is kind of about the transcendence of conservative values from one generation to another, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have any insight on what is the state of of our generation, if you will, of new parents, you know, who are going to have children in in the schools for the next, you know, 16, 18 odd years. Mm -hmm. What is what is our state, I guess? Yeah. So this is what concerns me, to be honest with you. So generally speaking, if you look at the opinions of um, young adults. And the, and the character of young adults that has been coming up through like a couple generations now, what you see is um, people who don't have a ton of, let me say this, there are certain parenting skills that I think are really lost to us. For example, like the ability to say no. Like that's a thing. I got on television one time just for, to be interviewed about how do you say no. I, and I went, well, here's how we do it. We just go, no. <laughs> and <laughs> so, I mean, there's like basic skills in parenting that I think have sort of been lost to us as a country. And so we have parents who think that the number one job that they have is to give their kids everything, give them all the stuff, give them all the opportunities, make sure everybody's got travel soccer and not just travel soccer, but the best coach and um, lacrosse and also viola lessons because that's a way you can get in the scholarship in some of the better schools. And oh, also an SAT prep coach and all the other stuff and not to mention a TV in your room and the laptop in your backpack and all the other things. And parents are so worried about making sure your kid has all the stuff to be successful that they don't necessarily focus on the real stuff to be successful, which is what's inside you. Because you know, making kids happy has become kind of this big focus. Um, one time I was on a radio show and my daughter was standing behind me. I didn't know she was there. And they asked me this question about what do you, you know, what's the biggest thing a parent needs to do? Is it make kids, is it help you know, them to be happy? I said, well, the first thing you have to do to help kids be happy is quit worrying about whether they're happy. Because happiness is not the job. Like, you need to create a, an environment in which your child will learn to be content on a day when happiness is not even an option. To, be, to find joy in life when you know, the tough things are going badly, to, when they fail, uh, to be resilient, to have the character traits that will allow them to find their own happiness. I can't make you happy, and even if I could, I could only do it for 18 years, and then my job is done. So, you know, what, so, and then I hung up the phone from this interview, and Betsy was behind me, and she goes, I knew it, you don't want us to be happy. <laughs> you found me out, oh my gosh. <laughs> Go clean your room, yeah. <laughs> 
So I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Um, the next generation of parents, first and foremost, needs to be better at just parenting. And they need to have the confidence of their convictions to know that the job, the, the vocation, if you will, of parenting is really not about uh, some competitive advantage you can give your kid. It's the competitive advantage of being the best person that your child can turn out to be. Um, and parents do have a role to play in that. There's a nature-nurture argument that happens a lot. Some kids just are more resilient. That's true. But if you have a kid that you do everything for and you never let him fail and he never gets to you know, get an F on his homework because he left it at home, that, that's a kid who's not going to learn resiliency on his own. And so, you know, there are things we can do as parents to say, eh, this kind of hurts to watch you go through, but I know there's a life lesson here for you, and so that's what's more important. So that's the one thing. I would really hope that in the next generation, our parenting just becomes more solid and a little less lacking in confidence. Um, there's an authority problem in a lot of homes where kids are really the center of the universe and the parents kind of operate on the periphery, just making sure everybody's schedule gets executed on time. Well, really, the parents should be the center of the universe. The marriage should be the center of the universe. And the kids should be dancing all around it because eventually they peel off and go away. And at the end, what you have is a great marriage. That's really what we would, would that's like the model we would hope for. Um, and so in that system, uh, children are, are recognized as being an outgrowth of this value system that the parents are really bringing. Um, and then beyond that, it's just being courageous enough so that when you are in this culture, you know, you've trained up a kid and your family is the kind of family that takes a stand, that says something. You know, I couldn't be in more agreement if you see something, say something. It's just that I would be seeing and saying really different things. Um, and if I, you know, so I think it has to be parents like, frankly, my sister who, when she learned about this lesson, marched into her school and said, this is horrible. What are you doing? You know, and turned out the principal knew nothing about it. Uh, other teachers in the department knew nothing about this this lesson that was taught. And you know, a rogue teacher kind of going off on her own with her own opinions. And sure enough, they were able to regroup, extract an apology, talk to the kids. You know, teach a different lesson out of that bad moment. And so, but that's because a parent had the nerve to go in and say probably an unpopular thing to challenge a popular teacher. So I think that's the kind of thing that is really going to be facing your generation of parents is just really, um, you know, that and keeping up with car seat development. I mean, the car seats are so complicated now. I'm kind of glad I was just in one of those bucket things, but yeah, so. Yes, ma'am. With the internet and all of the uh, social media, et cetera, and with the young audience, my question is, how, most of their parents probably are electronically inclined and are on the internet, know how to check the DVR, etc. But if they are not, they are not going to be involved with these grand these grandchildren, right. the children of these people. And beyond that how many people's grandparents are still actually quite young, and I'm saying 60s, 70s, <laughs> you know. They need to get with the program and be a part of and learn these things. My, my mother saw me with a, my first iPhone. She was 85 years old, and she, she, about six months of watching me mess with that, and she said, I'm being left behind, and she got an iPhone. Yeah. And yeah, she became awesome. addicted. <laughs> so I encourage the grandparents, the parents, yeah. to, to get with the program on that. Yeah. I'm going to text my 86-year-old parents and tell them you said that because they are on their iPhones all the time. I, I know that. Um, so last night when I spoke, a dad said, um, or he was a grand, grandparent too, and he, he said, what, you know, what can you recommend to grandparents? And I said, the first thing I recommend is kind of get with the program a little bit. It's no longer okay for anybody to say, oh, not for me, you know. 
uh, Twitter. It's too complicated, you know. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily do it, but you have to at least be literate enough to talk about it. That's like saying, you know, you know, not for me, television, you crazy finangled box, you know. <laughs> like, you know. So at some point, that was a new idea. For my parents' generation, it was like a big deal. And, you know, before my time, but it was only black and white. But, you know, so that's, that's something we have to recognize. Um, but the fun thing is that when parents and grandparents figure that out, they realize that that's an avenue to relationship. And relationship is where you have influence. You can't have influence over anybody you don't have a relationship with, right? That's like the first rule of, of evangelization, actually. It's the same thing. If you can't have a relationship with a friend and influence their opinion about politics or culture or government or anything else if they just you know, don't want to hear what you say because you're not friends. So you have to really, and, and that's the same thing within families. And so I like to imagine that all this technology is not only you know, sapping the energy out of people and keeping 13-year-olds up under the sheets at bed, you know, looking at all the stuff. But it's also creating an opportunity to, for example, text your 13-year-old and tell them to turn the thing off and go to bed. Um, that was a joke. You guys never got a text like that from your parents? Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a great point. Thank you. Yeah. You were talking with uh, about parents who overschedule their activity, children's activities, uh, come in, uh, hover over things like interviews these days, college applications, um, tiger moms, etc. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee in the new generation of parenting a backlash uh, for, with such things as like free-range parenting uh, going to be the new mm -hmm. thing as opposed to over-scheduling? I'm so glad you mentioned free-range parenting. Lenore Skenazy is a good friend of mine. She's the founder of that. And she inspired me. She's, she's the person who inspired me, my son who's now a senior at UGA, but um, when he was like the summer of his freshman year in high school, when she started this like about the same time I wrote the Geek Book, about 2008, and she wrote the first column about Izzy, her son, who she put on the subway and he was nine years old. Um, do you all know who, what I'm talking about? Okay, Free Range Kids is a movement founded by this writer. She used to be a columnist for New York Sun named Lenore Skenazy. Um, and she, she allowed her son, they lived on the Upper West Side of New York City, and she allowed her son to take the subway by himself. He was nine. And he'd been begging and begging. He wanted to take the subway by himself. And so she gave him $20 and a quarter to use a payphone and a map. He didn't have a cell phone. He just, you know, he just knew how to take, and he took the subway, and he popped up at home, and he was so proud of himself, and it was a big celebration. Oh, you made it home. You took the subway all by yourself. All by, I did it all by myself. That's what every kid wants to say. I did it all by myself. And so she was telling some friends about it, and they were horrified. So she wrote a column about it in the New York Sun. And she, two days later, she was on the Today Show. She's on Dr. Phil. She is still, if you Google worst mom in America, you get Lenore Skenazy. And But she turned that thing on a dime. And she wrote a book called Free Range Kids. I would strongly recommend it after you've read all of these. Um, and I actually mention it in a couple of these. And the premise of her book is that this is the safest time in human history to be a child. And the safest place is the United States of America. And the problem is we have a Nancy Grace environment where everybody thinks if you let your kid out of your sight, they're going to be you know, kidnapped and horrible things will happen. And she went through systematically and did all the research and statistics and everything to prove to you that you've grown up in the safest America in the world. And yet, I dare say, some of you, don't raise your hands because it's embarrassing, had parents who put those cones at the end of the driveway when you were little and wouldn't let you go further than that. Um, because that's a thing, right? Like around your block, like you spend all this time and money finding a house in a good neighborhood that will be safe for your family, and then you go, don't leave the yard. Like, what's the point of that? Why don't you just live where it's dangerous, you know? So it's cheaper there. Um, 
But, but so Lenore's point was, uh, and she's winning this one. She's starting a movement. But the reason it's working and the reason she's, people are noticing is because at the same time Lenore's movement is growing and parents are starting to realize, yeah, freedom and responsibility are how kids actually grow up. You can't tell somebody, listen, something bad ever happens, you know, there's what you would do. You actually let them go out in the world and, you know, something bad might actually happen a little bit, might get lost, might lose your way, might have to ask a stranger. Turns out almost all the strangers are wonderful and nice and good and will help you. And that's what, what one of the premises of her whole point. Um, but at the same time that she's been promoting this, um, the government intervenes at all these places with parents. Um, you've heard about the family in Maryland whose kids were picked up in the park a couple times and brought home. That was an, a mile away. She allowed her children to walk to the, the parents allowed their children to walk to the park and back together, a boy and a girl. And police saw them, a neighbor saw them, called the police. Police picked them up in a park, brought them home. Did you know your children were alone in the park? And the parents are like, yeah, we, we sent them. That's where they go play, you know, funny enough. And, um, you know, these, pa these parents were arrested twice. And um, actually, the Maryland legislature did pass a law um, confining some of CPS in Maryland's um, rights to intervene with parents and saying that you couldn't just merely seeing children alone was not reason to pick them up for negligence on the part of the parents. Um, but just today in my Facebook feed is the story Lenore uh, put out about, um, it's happening up in Canada, so of course you know it's coming down, coming down from this north, um, uh, in which a judge has declared agreement with a child protective service worker who has declared, based on her own opinion and nothing else, that a child of eight years old may never be alone in their house. And um, that may never be alone without, without an adult. That child can never be alone. And so a mom who had previously been letting her eight-year-old go home and be at home for an hour or so before she got home, he knew what to do. He was comfortable. She was comfortable. The family made that decision that it was a good decision for them. Everybody was cool, except for somehow or another it came to the light of this um, CPS person and she took it, you know, took it to go. And people are having their children taken away from them for parenting decisions that prior to now would have been, you know, completely obvious. And so it's a big movement. I hope that you young folks here who haven't started this process of finding a person and getting married will know about these things so that you are ready to have an opinion about what kind of family you want and what kind of environment you want to have in your home because it's going to matter. And it's going to matter to not just to you and your family, but it's going to matter to us as a nation. The better you are at being families with children, the better we all are because of your families and your children. So anybody else? One more. Hi, I was wondering if you had any uh, suggestions on resources for those of us who may feel a little lonely mm -hmm. in this whole process of parenting. And other than following you on Twitter or <laughs> reading your books, of course, yeah. um, it would just, if there's. Yeah, you know, well, a couple things. One is, um, if you're still in this kind of, Lenore's actually created like kind of um, a dating app for free range parents, hilariously. Uh, where you can find other people in your area who feel the way you do. And if you're the kind of person who thinks it's okay to let teenagers, you know, hang out together and be, you know, this because this is the thing, is that parents who feel this way don't have anybody with them. And so they, that, you know, you're stuck because you tell your kids to go outside and play, but there's nobody to play with because nobody else is outside. So that's one thing. Um, the, there are... Um, there are some groups online, and I could actually, you know, if you'd email me, I could actually hook you up with some ideas um, of some resources. And actually, in the back of both of these most recent books, I have a list of resources, very many, um, to actually go find that sort of thing. But it really is, um, it's a, it, parenting is an interesting thing. It's like in every family, that's a big deal. 
but it's, you know, it's relegated to like the self-help department and people don't seem to want to see how integral this is to the very function of how we are as a nation. And if you don't see the result, and that is that the thinking of, of young America, then you don't realize how critical it is that we actually step up and do it better. So, um, so thank you to all of you, though, for not, for not being part of the problem. That's what I want to say. So. Thank you so much. My this pleasure. Was, I, I, you look hungry, though. <laughs> awesome. So we'll leave the books. Um, we'll leave the books up here so that you all can come up and jot down the titles um, of each one of these. And um, I think we have a couple of gifts to share uh, with you. Uh, we'll let the Claire Booth loose. Oh, thank you. Go first. Well, on behalf of our president Michelle Easton, who wishes she could have been here today, I have a limited edition tote bag edition tote. and <laughs> thank you. mug. Awesome. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm Her such very a fan. famous statement on it. No good deed goes unpunished, which, yeah. Which it's like I'm a mother's sure trademark line. Yes, yeah. I was just going to yeah. say, you can totally yeah. relate to that. <laughs> Absolutely. This um, is and great. from Thank Heritage, um, we always, we're think tanks, so we like to give away books. Uh, so uh, the two-volume set of Tocqueville's Democracy in America, who talks about um, exactly kind of these neighborhoods and these communities. Um, to add to your bookshelf, I think your husband's a lawyer. Yeah. So. And, um, we our, actually are the kind of people who read that sort of thing. So yeah. That's really awesome. And um, our most recent Index of Culture and Opportunity, which looks at some of the trends that um, she's talking about and I'm sure that you're referencing in your work So for, for your bookshelf. I hope you all can stick around and join us for further conversation and lunch, uh, which will be just outside in the reception area. Thanks again.